we come to you, the living God, bringing our sacrifice of praise and worship. And Lord, we want to stop here for a minute and bring our lives and our bodies as a living sacrifice to you, which is the most reasonable thing we can do in all of life. Lord, you alone know the secrets of your great will and plan for our lives. You alone, Lord God, have the sufficiency we need in the many details of our lives, the difficulties, the critical decisions that must be made. And you alone, God, can fill us with your Holy Spirit and lead us step by step, day by day. You alone can say within our souls, this is the way, walking in it. And Lord, we're praying for that. We're praying for that rich, profound work that you, God, do deep within the inner recesses of our hearts to where we know this is God. This is God talking to me. This is God leading me. Lord, we love that work. We crave that work. We ask for that ministry of your Spirit within us as we come to study this day and as we go from this message that you would continue to unfold the message to us long after this time together. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I have entitled the the message for this time in John 9, The Savior Who Truly Cares to Save. To me, it is such a rich, profound, colorful picture that is so graphic concerning the ways of God and Jesus Christ. Here in this passage, you have not only the compassion of Jesus Christ, the Savior who meets suffering. And we looked at that in, in great detail early on in the, in the passage, in the chapter. You have the Savior here who is so committed to His Father's work, and not just as the Son of God, but as the model human being. Jesus stands on the pages of Scripture in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, in a timeless way, really, because he is always there. And he stands before us as the model human being, as what every human being should be, and as the model child of God, what every child of God should be. And here he is, the Savior, who said that he must work the works of his Father. There was that underlining of that must. I exist to do this. Every moment, every hour has something critical that must be done and then I must move on to the next thing. And that is why he turned aside to heal this blind man. Because he must do it, even though he did it with a pack of murderous religious leaders behind him that had just sought to kill him. So in the act of escaping a murder plot, a murderous mob, he stops right out the gate of the temple and just turns aside to heal this man. But he did it with a lot more in mind than just opening the eyes of a blind man. Here is a Savior who works miracles, and all the miracles that John records, and there's only six or seven of them, are here for a purpose, to teach far more than the fact that God can do a miracle. Every one of the miracles John records is just so packed with the events surrounding it and communicates so much truth about salvation because that's why John writes. That's the whole intent of his book. John purposely leaves out most of what Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote because they covered it so well and overlapped and filled in all the details of each other. He didn't even attempt to add a fourth overlap to that. 
His gospel is totally different. And his gospel is written constantly with the words believe scattered everywhere and constantly with, with these direct encounters with Jesus Christ where he calls people to a direct confrontation to believe or not believe, to be saved or not be saved, to have their eyes open or not have their eyes open. And this is a dramatic account of that Savior at work. And we see here that, above all, he is the Savior who truly cares And at the end of all of it is not just a care for hurt, but a care for the ultimate concern, which is your eternity, the salvation of your soul, the rescue of your life from sin. And so we come finally here to the Savior who cares in our outline as we have broken it down. What I see here, and and I want to read through it, then we'll get into it, is the tremendous regard Jesus had for this man as he was hurting after his encounter with Jesus. But let's back up in verse 24. And begin there. Jesus healed the blind man, and then they interrogated him. And in verse 24, they called the man who was blind, and they said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man, speaking of Jesus, is a sinner. And he answered, and he said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know, that I was blind, and now I see. And they said to him again, What did he say to you? How did he open your eyes? And you remember... He opened his eyes by taking some dirt and putting it in his hand and then spitting in it and mixing the spit and the dirt into a what would be a gravelly clay. And what would have, at the point of contact with the man's eyes, with his thumbs pressing that gravelly clay into his eyes and rubbing it around, it would have been grinding on his eyes, probably the most painful thing he'd ever experienced. As he's grinding that in there and wondering who this guy is that he can't see and what he's doing, then Jesus gave him the command to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Then he went and he was healed. And then he came back and now these are the things he knows and he's answering these sharp professional religionists. And they said to him all these questions and he answers verse 25, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know is that I was blind and now I see. And they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? I could just see a big smile on his face. This is going to kill him. I have to say it though. Do you want to become his disciples? And they reviled him and they said, You are his disciple. We are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. And as for this fellow, we don't know where he's from. And I love this guy. He doesn't say any more than he knows and he doesn't know a lot. But what he says is honest and from his heart and it's true as he knows it. And it's so profound to answer their weird questions and weird comments. He answered, he said to them in verse 30, Why, this is a marvelous thing. You do not know where he's from, and yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Now, since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone has opened the eyes of one born blind. We all know that this has never been done ever in history. Never, ever. And you want to say the man is a sinner, but this has never been done ever. That God doesn't hear sinners. If he's a sinner, then God wouldn't have heard him. But here he's done a thing that's never been done ever. Therefore, God has heard him. Therefore, he can't be a sinner. 
Therefore, he's not what you say he is. Therefore, he must be something else. Do you want to be his disciples? And so he says to them, Since the world began, it is unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man was not from God, he could do nothing. Figure it out, he's saying. They answered and said to him, You were completely born in sins, and you are teaching us? And they cast him out. That is probably a reference to, besides simply being holier than thou. I mean, like they weren't born in sin. That is probably a reference to the fact that he was born blind, perhaps his parents had a venereal disease, and um, many people were blind simply from babies born to mothers with gonorrhea in those days. The, the whole area of Palestine was filled with blind people simply because of the immorality, and they didn't have drugs to deal with it. And it may be a reference to that. You just come from a vile origin, and who are you to even speak to us about the things of God, you filthy blind man? It's that kind of an attitude. It's unbelievable. You were completely born in sins, and you're teaching us, and then this, they cast him out. What does that mean? It doesn't mean they just picked him up and threw him out the door. They had already said, and his parents were afraid of this, they had already made the announcement that if anybody believed that Jesus was the Christ and took him to be the Messiah, they would be excommunicated from the synagogue. So when it says they cast him out, they didn't just pick him up by his neck and throw him out the door. They excommunicated him from his whole life, really. He would have been cut off from worshiping with his people. He would have been cut off from his family. He would have been cut off in large degree from buying food or anything else. Completely. They ruined his life in one moment is what they did. Because of his testimony for Jesus with the little that he knew. So they cast him out. Then we come to verse 35. And we come to the Savior who really cares in the regard of Christ for the hurting heart. This man is now really suffering. Think about it. On the one hand, it is the greatest day of his life because he was born blind and now he sees. And that's because of Christ. On the other hand, he has now been excommunicated. Effectively, his life is ruined. It is the worst day of his life. And it is all because Christ touched him. If Jesus would have left him alone, this would not have happened to him. Bear in mind, he didn't stand up and shout for Jesus. This isn't blind Bartimaeus, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. This is a guy just sitting there, and Jesus walks over to him, starts scraping his eyes with this spitty mud. And the next thing you know, he's healed. He didn't ask for any of it. So here he is. It's the greatest day of his life, and it's the worst day of his life, and it's because Jesus invaded his life with his great compassion and miraculous power. And so in verse 35, then, we read, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. That means a lot. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. The suffering of those that are dear to Christ is not hid from him. What a tremendous thought. This man was dear to Jesus. He had fixed his heart upon him. When I study Romans and I read of those foreknown in eternity past, this man's caught in the foreknowledge of God. He is dear to Jesus. Jesus doesn't just heal this man and take off. And he had every right to take off. There's a murder plot after him. But he hears that they had cast him out. And immediately his heart is involved further. The suffering of those dear to Christ is not hid from him. I have a 
tremendous commentary on the Gospel of John. It was written by a Scottish man in 1657. 1657. And that book is just loaded with such richness. I came across a few thoughts. I'll pass one on to you now that really spoke to me studying for this. He said, When Christ's people are crushed with troubles and ill-treated, then it is his fit time. Then it is his fit time to fall in and give them a tender visit. That is so good. Let me read it again. When Christ's people are crushed with troubles and ill-treated, then it is his fit time to fall in or get moving, get in line, and go to them and give them a tender visit. This man is now crushed with trouble, and it isn't his fault at all. All he did was stick up for Jesus, really. All he did was tell what happened to him, actually. And so they threw him out, but Jesus heard that they had cast him out. That's because Jesus hears and is aware of every ill thing that happens to us, and he is deeply involved. The next thing I see here is that by casting him out, they drove him closer to Christ. Our God is so big. He is so big and so all-powerful that though these men meant nothing but evil for him, God, in his plan, had already woven it into his plan, the evil of these men to work good for the blind man. If ever all things were working together for the good for someone called, it's right here. They cast him out, but in doing so they drove him to Christ. How? Well, think about this for a minute. Here's a man who's been healed. He's not the first. Jesus healed a lot of people. Not all of them were saved in the end. For example, this man could have gone away and just had a wonderful, glorious day. And now he sees. But you know how the human heart is. And let's just suppose that these religious men, the Pharisees, just let him go. Said, oh, you were healed, huh? Yeah, a lot of people are being healed these days. Just keep quiet about it or something. And suppose they just let him go. None of this major excommunication thing. So they just let it go. Well, it would be very possible that the guy could just have that man who healed him fade slowly out of his mind, be happy that he had a great day that he sees now, and be glad about seeing, but that's where it all ends. But you see, it was never God's intention for it to end there. God wanted... This man to be saved from his sins, not just his blindness. In fact, the blindness is just a means to the end, really, in this situation. And I have to stop here and ask the question. I thought about it a lot today. How many people, you could probably think of many, who have so obviously experienced the mercy of God? I mean, it's so obvious that they've experienced the mercy of God, and yet in the end they only walk away and they never even really come to salvation in Christ. They have their moment where they say, Oh, God has been good to me. But in the end, they never really come to Christ. People that are on their deathbed and they're going to die and then they live. And it's so obvious God has given them a second chance. And yet, they get religious for a little while and it's all prayers while they're dying. And pray to Jesus for me and, you know, let me pray with you to Him and all this. And then they get well and they just forget. Well, God didn't want this man to forget. In Luke 17, why don't you hold your place here and turn to Luke 17. There's an account where this actually happened. 
In Luke 17, Jesus healed ten lepers. And it's amazing to see their response to him in the middle of the whole thing. Luke 17, 11 says, Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers, who, notice, stood afar off. They were outcasts from society. They could not mingle with normal people because of their leprosy. In those days, you were kept away from everybody else. It was a miserable life. You, you stayed alive basically by digging through garbage, and uh, they would be thrown over the city walls and so on. So here comes Jesus, and there met him ten men who were lepers who stood afar off. Now notice, they cry out to him. This is the opposite of the blind man. They cry out to him, it says, and they lifted up their voices and they said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So they call him Master, they cry out to him, they ask for his power to come and to help them. And so when he saw them, he said to them, in verse 14, Go show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. Just as they're walking, they're healed. He said, go show yourself to the priest. Why? Because there was a whole provision in the loft if a leper was cleansed. But you see, no lepers were ever cleansed. Nobody was ever healed of leprosy. So this is a massive testimony to the priests who are unbelieving that Jesus is the Son of God. And so he sends them off, heals them on the way, and the idea is by the time they get to the priest, they're all healed and they have this incredible testimony to give. You would assume that they would all turn around and come running back and say, you know, just a minute before we get to the priest, we're healed, we want to thank you so much. You are who you say you are. But look what happens. As they went, they were cleansed in verse 15. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God. What's the count again there in verse 15? One of them. And he fell down on his face giving thanks, and he was a Samaritan. This isn't the only good Samaritan in the Gospels. So Jesus answered and he said, But wait a minute, where's everybody else? Weren't there ten cleansed? Where are the nine? That is a good question. Where are they? I mean, where are they at? Where are their heads at? Where their hearts at? Where are they? What is wrong with these people? And in verse 18, Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? I mean, the guy's not even a Jew. He doesn't even have the heritage that you have. Where's the rest of him? And he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well or whole. I mean, he got the whole picture and got what God wanted to give him. All the nine went away. It is not uncommon to see that Jesus would heal someone and they would just forget about it and remain unsaved. God set his eye on the blind man to save him from his blindness and from his sin. If you go back to John, in God's plan, he allowed the man to be born blind. And he allowed it because of this day and because he wanted to use it as a point to bring him to salvation. In fact, if you look back at John 9... In verse 1, Jesus gave a forecast about all this. John 9, 1, it said, As Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, 
And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, said, neither this man or his parents sinned. You want to know why he's blind from birth? In this case, it's because that the works of God should be revealed in him. And that doesn't mean only that Jesus would stop and miraculously heal him while escaping from a murder plot. That is magnificent enough. But it's so far beyond that. It has to do with his salvation. Some of the strangest things that God allows are used by God to bring people to salvation. Sometimes you look at people in their life and you know how desperately they need the Lord, but they don't. And sometimes it, it, God just has to let them go all the way down to the bottom before they will cry out to Him. Sometimes you look at somebody and I just often think, you know what, they just haven't suffered enough. They still think it's really cool being in the world. They still think life in sin is something wonderful to hang on to. They need a little more dragging down to the bottom of the pit and then maybe they'll be ready. God uses these things. But this cruel act of excommunication actually then prepared this man to be saved. In John 9.35, if you look down there, Jesus heard they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? See, by the time Jesus found him, and he would have had to look and look and look for this man, by the time he found him, he would have been in need of comfort, deep comfort. He would have been in need of answers, real answers. God was ready to give it all to him. And that is the place that God brings you to when he's about to save you. He brings you to the end of yourself, where every means you have tried in life for comfort has failed, where every place you've looked for answers has drawn you up short. I remember Mike McIntosh sharing his testimony and how he had taken too many hits of acid and his cruel friends had put a bag over his head and told him they were blowing his head off. And in his trip on LSD, he actually saw it happen and he started to go crazy and he cried out to all the, the ways that he had been searching for God. He cried out to Buddha and he cried out to Swami Prabhananda, Yogananda. And he cried out to all these different guys he'd been searching out the path to God through. And he said they all appeared to him one by one and they stood before him and they said, we have taken you as far as we can. We cannot take you any farther. And then he was plunged into his darkness. But it was Jesus Christ that brought him out of that darkness. And that crazy man who thought he was dead for over a year or two with his head blown off on one side is now the pastor of one of the largest churches in America and one of the most thriving evangelistic ministries on the earth. Not only that, one of the happiest guys you'll ever meet. Talk about a guy who's been hurt. He has every reason to sit around depressed and talking to his analyst every week and anybody else that will listen about how he's been hurt. Do you know that my head was blown off? Do you know I've been so deeply wounded? You see, but God gave him a new life in Christ. God lets you come to the place where, where you have tried every means of comfort, every means for the answers, and when you're ready for deep comfort and real answers, then you're ready for Jesus Christ. And maybe you're there today. And if you don't know him, you will not find the answers anywhere else. You won't. Until you get honest with yourself and with him, you're going to be miserable. And if you don't stop now and turn to him, it will get worse. He heard they had cast him out, and he was so deeply concerned, and so he found him, when he had found him. There is a scripture, I don't know where you are in your life today, and maybe you already 
saved, maybe you're not, maybe you're going through this. Maybe you feel so deeply alone. There's a scripture in Psalm 27, verse 10, that says, Though my father and mother even would forsake me, the Lord will receive me. I love that. Because you see, some of the deepest wounding we'll ever get in our life will be in the house of our friends. Jesus said, if you follow me, even those of your own household will become your enemies at points. Think not that I came to bring peace out to the world, but a sword to divide, really, because light divides from the darkness. Truth divides from the falsehood. Though father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Here's a man forsaken by his father and mother. They just played dumb in front of the scribes and Pharisees. He's of age, ask him. Wouldn't even say, yeah, absolutely, this has got to be God that did this because they didn't want to be thrown out of the synagogue. All of his friends forsook him, but the Lord received him. God used the cruel act of excommunication to prepare him for what he had next in his life. And that was a full revelation of God in Christ. Verse 35, Jesus heard they had cast him out, and when he found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? I think that what happens is that in every case of salvation, it's obvious from Hebrews 6 that there is a pre-salvation work long before you ever say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, forgive me. I believe you died for me and rose again, save me. Long before you ever come to that, the Holy Spirit has been enlightening you. He's been what I call plowing your heart. He has been showing you your need, convicting of your sin showing you your helplessness to get free long before. So I think that what happens in many lives is that there is this turning initially, even before you're born again, against what's wrong. You probably saw that in your life. I remember waking up and looking around my drug life and my drug world and my drug circle, passing the joint around. You know, everybody taking their hits and... Making that stupid sound and that stupid face. <coughs> this is bad stuff, man. And I remember one day finally thinking, you know what is bad? And I don't mean good by bad, I mean bad. It's not good, it is bad. And I don't mean cool. And I don't mean it's hot, that it's rad, that it's bad, that it's good, that it's bad, that it's cool, and all that. It stinks. It even really does stink, this stuff. It's all over my clothes, all over my car. I'm sick of it. And it's wrong on top of all that, and I don't care what anybody says. It's wrong. And I remember I got to that point. That's because of God working in me. This man knew that these people were wrong. He's, whatever he didn't know, he knew that they were wrong, and they were wicked, and they were evil. He says, you know, you say, if, if a man is a sinner, God doesn't he hear him. Then how could he hear a prayer to open the eyes of a man born blind? Come on. You guys are wicked. There's something wrong with you. I don't want anything to do with you. We'll throw you out. Fine. I'm leaving anyhow. I'm already on my way out. You know, I believe that happens to people. You have this intolerance for evil because of the work of God in your heart, but you're not even saved yet. That's right where he was. And that only means God wants to take you all the way there. Martin Luther, long before he truly understood pure Christianity, was revolting against the gross things the Pope was doing long before he understood real Christianity. So he made his stand, and by the time he's thrown out, guess who's waiting? 
Christ to reveal himself more fully to him. I'll tell you, he got such an eye full of Jesus, the world was affected. Our lives have been affected by his work and his life and his ministry. Men begin to stand against wrong because of the work of God in their hearts, and when it's God's design to take them all the way to Christ, then he moves in. Commentary I was telling you about, there's another comment the man made right here. It's so, it was so profound, I had to read it over and over. He said, men may be put through tribulation with a lesser measure of knowledge, and all the while a further measure is being reserved for their encouragement when they are under it. You take your stand with your little knowledge, and it's right, and yet all the while God sees that, and He has reserved for you a far greater wealth and bank of knowledge in Christ He's about to reveal to you, and that will be the form of comfort that will come to you in the midst of your trial. Does that make sense to you? That is such a profound thought to me. He said, in this case, for he had endured a sharp trial in Christ's defense before he even knew him well. And now he is led up to know him to be the Son of God as the means of his encouragement. God is so awesome. God is so awesome. He found him, and he brought him to a mature and knowledgeable faith. And that came on the heels of a decisive break with those around him that he knew were wrong and evil. And that is often where the mature and knowledgeable faith comes, when you have taken a stand for what you know is right. And the regard of Christ, then, for the hurting heart. Then comes the revelation of Christ to the honest heart. And Jesus pops the all-important question in John 9.35. He says, Do you believe in the Son of God? Now, follow this. Jesus heard they had cast him out. When he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? This is the all-important question in all of life. It really is. For a number of reasons. One, because it deals with salvation. Now think about who this man is. Think about what he's just gone through, what we've been talking about. It is to this man, he says, Do you believe in the Son of God? Your NIV might say, Son of Man. We don't need to get into an endless discussion about why the difference at this point. I'll tie it in briefly in a little while. But here he is, and he says, Do you believe in the Son of God? This man, he asked him that question because it deals with salvation, and he really didn't have it yet. And he says, Do you believe in the Son of God? Why the Son of God? Because the question deals with the only way to salvation. That's why it is really the all-important question. It deals with salvation and actually the only way of salvation. And he asks him this question, do you believe in the Son of God? Because no other experience short of the act of believing, which is to trust and cling to and rely upon, to enter into in John's gospel. Belief carries all of that. No other experience short of that eliminates the need to answer that question. This man had all kinds of incredible experiences already. Jesus said, fills his eyes with gravelly, spitty mud, and he said, now go wash in the pool of Siloam. He unhesitatingly went and washed. 
So to this man's credit, he has already unhesitatingly obeyed Jesus. To that man, with that kind of obedience, he says, Do you believe in the Son of God? You. But it wasn't just that. This man has had considerable experiences. I mean, he obeyed Christ and his whole life changed. He obeyed one command from Christ and his whole life changed. And any command of Christ you obey is going to affect your life. He had considerable experiences already. His blind eyes were open, to say the very least. He had a new perspective on life. Considerable experiences because of the result of a command made by Christ obeyed. It is to this man, he says, do you believe in the Son of God? You see, you can have to your credit obedience to commands of Christ. You can have to your credit change in your life. And still not know Him, still not have ever closed in on Him yourself, connected with Him yourself, to trust and cling to and rely on Him, to trust Christ. Really, that is the essence of saving faith, to trust Him with your life and your eternity. Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, upon a God I cannot see. I stake my whole eternity. And Jesus is the reason why. You see? You come to trust Him. He says to this man who had obeyed Him, who had considerable experiences because of obeying Him, do you believe in the Son of God? But that wasn't all. This man had borne courageous testimony to Jesus. Think of it. The little that he knew, he told it. I don't know. I don't know. All I know is that I've never encountered anybody like him. He bore testimony to Christ with the little that he knew. Still, Jesus says, do you believe? And maybe you've done that. Maybe you've grown up in a Christian home. Maybe you just always have believed it. Maybe you've told people the gospel. Maybe you've seen them respond and come to know him, but you've never really known him personally. And you know that you don't. You know that it's here, but it's just all so different for you than for other people. Then it's time for you to believe in the Son of God personally, to take hold of him personally. I think that you could go forward in a crusade, you could weep and cry, you could tell your friends, you could speak of how Christ died on the cross because obviously at that point you would know that. If you have a good positive vibe about it, you could put bumper stickers up, you could put badges on your shirt, and still then have your obedience, your experience, your testimony, but still have Christ himself be saying to you, do you believe on me? You, not them, you. This man had suffered for Christ's sake. They threw him out of the synagogue. He's been excommunicated, but he still doesn't know him personally. He's not saved. And it is the design of Christ to not let go of him until he is. And so he says, do you believe in the Son of God? It's the all-important question. For all those reasons, but there's another. You want to know why? There's another reason because you will have to face this question sooner or later. If you say, well, no, I'll think about it. That's no. You said no. What a wonderful, smooth way to say no. Ah, I'll think about it. That's no. Well, I, um, I don't know. I, I, I don't have anything against him. That's no too. You see... If it's maybe, or if it's, I don't know, then it's no. 
And you're going to have to face it sooner or later. In the NIV, now we've slept in all you NIV people, you Anivites. In the NIV, in John 9.35, Jesus says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He loved to use that title about himself. And really in the end, if you chase it around the whole theological circle, it's the same is what the King James puts. Because you see in Daniel 7.13, and most theologians believe that the constant use of Christ to Daniel 7.13, where he sees one like unto the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, and to him is given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all people, nation, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, the one which will not be destroyed like that of the Antichrist and Satan. The Son of Man. Most theologians believe, evangelical ones, that Christ chose to call himself that to connect himself with Daniel 7.13 because they did not, the theologians of his day did not. They didn't connect that with the Messiah. So to anyone that would really want to listen, that's where he pointed you. That's who I am, he's saying all the time. So in the end, it's all the same. So what I'm telling you is you're going to have to face it sooner or later because the Son of Man is going to sit on the throne and judge the human race. He who became the Son of Man and died and rose again will sit on the throne to judge. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed to men to die once, once, and then the judgment. And that's where if you try to shirk the question, do you believe in the Son of God? Until you die, you will be raised from the dead and taken to him. And then you will answer that question to him. He will ask you to your face. You will see him face to face and he will ask you. In Revelation twenty eleven, can you turn there in your Bible? We'll just look at it real quick. Revelation twenty eleven. question is, do you believe in the Son of God? Revelation 20.11. It's all the way to the right, then back up a little bit, and you'll have it. Revelation 20.11. I was going to have you turn to Obadiah, but time is of the essence. <laughs> Revelation 20.11. Then I saw a great white throne, and he who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things written in the books. It goes on to say, and the sea and every place else gave up her dead. This is the resurrection of the dead, of those who died that didn't know Christ. And you will stand before him and answer the question, do you believe in the Son of God? The dead, in verse 13, the sea gave up her dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to your works. And so, you will have to answer this sooner or later. You should answer it today. A maybe is a no. A delayed answer? I can't answer that right now. That's no. Even to fail to answer it entirely, well, you see, it's sort of like that's no, too. You see, the point is, if you haven't believed, do it now. 
The Bible says today is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Just as Jesus found him. He went and he found him. And he brought him to a face-to-face encounter. God has found you. And he's brought you to listen and you to understand. And so much has gone into your life to bring to you to where you could sit and understand right now that you can't put it off. Today is the day. You should do it today. You should do it now. Right now. The question is, do you believe in the Son of God? Yes or no? And if the answer is yes, then open your heart and trust Him and cling to you and He will save you right now. Right now. One of the greatest times I ever had leading to someone to Christ, I've told this story, was in the Minneapolis airport on the graveyard shift. Can any good thing come out of a graveyard shift? And there I was cleaning toilets, filthiest job I ever had, most sickening. And I was singing away, slopping soap everywhere over the walls, up and down the concourse of the Minneapolis airport, cleaning every toilet in the place. And there I was, singing my heart out, joy, 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 I love cleaning toilets, just something like that. Because I do it for you, Lord, you know. And this guy walked in, he said, what is going on in here? Singing with your head in a filthy toilet? What manner of man is this? And I waved my magic wand around and I said, a man who loves Christ, you know. (laughs) Covered with all kinds of garbage. And he says, I must hear more of this. I just witnessed to him on the spot. I said, I'll see it break. When we get to break, then I want to talk to you more. We got to break, and he's sitting there beaming. And I'm walking over to him, getting all ready, you know, to close the deal. And to pray with him, and I've got it all ready. And I sat down, I said, okay, now listen. And I start in, and I'm leading up to him. He says, you're going to stop already. I said, what do you mean? I'm not done. I have to tell you the rest and how good it is. And then we're going to pray. Maybe you could pray. He said, stop. I said, why? He said, I know where you're going. I've already been there. I said, what do you mean? He said, as soon as you left, as soon as I went down the hall, I turned the corner, I stopped and I prayed. And I asked him to come into my life. I wanted the joy now that you had. I couldn't wait. (laughs) Right now, do you believe in the Son of God? Yes or no? If yes, then... Out with the world and in with Christ right now. And get on with it. Get on with Him. You want to know what Jesus' gospel is? Is this. Turn from your sins and follow Christ. That is His gospel. What anyone else would make it, that is His gospel. Turn from your sin and follow me. Will you be not my disciple? Then follow me. The all-important question. And I love the all-important attitude that comes forth here. It's honesty. In John 9.36, he answered, he said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? This guy, I love him. He's just honest. Well, do you believe in the Son of God? Well, I'm not quite sure who he is. After all, I've been blind my whole life. Christ is so quick to reveal himself to him. And I want to say to you today, if you say, You know what? I just, I want to believe, but I need help. I'm not sure. Well, then he'll help you. Today. You tell him today. Like he said to another man, do you believe? He said, yes, I do, but help my unbelief. Part of me believes and I want all of me to believe. Help me, Lord. Well, that's what a Savior has come to do. He will help you. Who is he, Lord? Help me that I may believe. And Jesus is so quick to answer that honest heart. He said, you have both seen him and it is he 
who was talking to you. Can you imagine what went through that guy's heart? This is too good to be true. The same one that gave me sight now gives me sight. It couldn't be any better. You hear his honest heart. And I say to you today, if your heart is honest, Jesus will meet you the same way. He talked with a woman at a well who had had all these previous men in her life. And Jesus said, and I happen to know that the guy you're living with now, he's not even, you're not even married to him. You've had already five husbands. Now you don't even bother. Number six, whew, why even get married? He said, I know all about you. And she said, well, I know the Messiah's coming. This day. She, well, but we worship this way and you guys worship. And he just cut through it all. He said, look, he is standing and talking to you now. You see, because he saw that her heart was honest. And he sees if your heart is honest today. Open your heart to him. Trust him today to save you. He is quick to reveal to the honest heart. The all-important question, the all-important attitude, honesty. And the all-important response, true belief from the heart. Then he said, Lord, I believe. You know what's so great is that this man had obeyed, this man had experienced, this man had testified, this man had suffered, but he still wasn't saved. And now as Jesus presses in on his heart, he is suddenly saved. Listen to this. Spurgeon told the story of a pastor that he knew who was unconverted, and he was preaching one day. The pastor, not converted, he was preaching one day, and right in the middle of his sermon, he got born again. The pastor. This is what he said. He said, the pastor was much like the man who had been born blind. He had obeyed Christ. He had gone through considerable spiritual experience. He had witnessed for Christ. He had even suffered to some degree. Nevertheless, he was not converted. And one Sunday as he was preaching, he was taken up with the truth of his own message. He, he was so taken up with it, in fact, it affected his normal mode of speaking. And he found himself declaring the truth of Christ's death with the utmost conviction. He just started preaching away. And the congregation started to notice. And there was a little Methodist man in the crowd, and he shouted out at the top of his lungs, The pastor's been converted! (laughs) And everybody began to look and go, It's true! It's true! It's true! He's converted! And suddenly the pastor stopped in the middle of his message. He stopped preaching, and he looked around, and he said, "I, I believe you're right. He said, something wonderful has happened to me. I do believe on Jesus. Let's all stand and worship him. And he had them all stand and sing praise God from whom all blessings flow. Converted in his own sermon. You see how far you can go. But you see how far Christ will go to get you. That's the point. He said, Lord, I believe Matthew Henry put it so well. He said, Our Lord Jesus graciously reveals himself to the man. Now he was made sensible. What an unspeakable mercy it was to be cured of his blindness that he might see the Son of God in that hour that he saved him. God wanted to save him. But first he opened his blind eyes that had sealed him in the dark his whole life. So in the moment when Jesus said, Do you believe in the Son of God? He could say, Who is he that I might? And he could say, 
take a look with those new eyes of yours. You're looking at him. Oh, the mercy of God. Matthew Henry went on to say, None but God is to be worshipped, so that in worshipping Jesus he owned him to be God, and all who believe in him will worship him. You see, this man responded with true belief from the heart, and then he went on to give true worship. And coming to know Christ was to worship him. Arthur Pink said that where God is truly known, he is necessarily adored. A.W. Tozer said, God made us to be worshipers, and that was the purpose of God bringing us into the world. Tozer went on to say, if you will not worship God seven days a week, then don't think you worship him one day a week on Sunday. God wants worshipers, Tozer said, before workers. He said, indeed, the only acceptable workers are those who have learned the art of worship. Matthew Henry said, a secret worship is better the more secret it is. He said, on the other hand, public worship is better the more public it is. Do you understand? Jesus is calling this man publicly to say, I believe in you. In front of everybody, he says to him, do you believe in me? It's right there. It's public. He said, Jesus said in another place, that if you will deny me before men, I will deny you before the holy angels and my Father in heaven. There's no secret disciples. Tell it if it's true. Stand for him today. Tozer said, True worship seeks union with its beloved, an active effort to close the gap between the heart and the God it adores is worship at its best. None reverence the Lord more than those who know him best. This man entered into a whole new life. Think of it. The greatest day of his life became the worst day of his life as they threw him out. Everything was closed to him at that point that he had previously known. Jesus heard about it and found him, went to him, and opened his eyes and revealed himself to him and opened the door to a whole new family, to a whole new life, to heavenly resources that could meet his every need, And he came into a life that day and that hour that took him in one moment from the worst condition he'd ever been in to the greatest condition he could ever be in and one that would only get better as life went on from there. And that's what God does to you when he saves you. Everything becomes new. Behold, all the old things are passed away and all things become new. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation by the power of God. I love what William Cooper said. The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from its throne and worship only thee. Last time we see this man on the pages of Scripture, he's worshiping. He is where God wanted him the whole time, and he is one to leave after that. The last thing we see in this passage is Having seen the regard of Christ for the hurting heart and the revelation of Christ to the honest heart, the last thing we see is the reproof of Christ to the dishonest heart. If we could just finish by going to John nine thirty nine, Jesus said, because the scribes and Pharisees are there, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, 
and that those who see may be made blind. And I see him waving his arm at that point. That those who do not see may see, pointing to the blind man. Not only does he now see with his eyes, but he sees with his spiritual eyes. In his heart, he's been taken from darkness to light by me because he believed I was the Son of God. And that those who think that they do see, pointing to the Pharisees, would be made blind. And then in verse 40, some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and they said to him, Are we blind also? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, like him, if you admit that you cannot see like him, if you admit you're in the darkness and helpless like him, then you would have no sin. That isn't to say you'd be sinless, but you would not have the sin of unbelief like you have now. You would have the means of forgiveness, which is me, as he has just found. But now you say, we see. Remember, God didn't come to a world of men seeking him for the light. He came into the darkness. The light shined in the darkness, in a dark place. The people that sat in the darkness saw a great light. And yet he came unto his own, and his own received him not. So here they are. They do not receive him. They see the light. They don't want it. They think they can see without him. Therefore, he says, I will confirm you in the blindness that you're too arrogant and proud to admit, and you will stay there. And therefore, your sin remains. They're in the act of committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is to reject the testimony of God. What he accepted and what saved him, the blind man, those who thought they were so insightful and could see all spiritual truths did not get and they are confirmed in their unforgiven state he says your sin remains in another place he said you will die in your sins because you do not believe that I am he you will not not you cannot you will not so here they are I can imagine As it all closed off, Jesus walks off with this man. They huddle up and go down the street murmuring to one another, congratulating one another on how another day of triumph with Jesus from their perspective. But you see, the triumph of falsehood in the end is so short-lived. These men, unless they change their hearts, will be in hell forever because their sin remains. Don't you make the same mistake. Jesus loves you so much. Right as you sit today, it's your heart. I, I can't do it for you. The person next to you can't do it for you. You say to him, yes, I believe. Save me now. Reveal yourself to me. Help anything in me that is not willing to go along. I believe, help my unbelief. Just save me, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love. You have sent your only Son, that whoever would believe on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Oh God, we pray for every person listening to this message, that none would go from this place without Christ. Lord God, work your work of salvation in every heart. Manifest the power of your great love, Lord, to melt any resistance to overpower any pride and turn it into a heart that says, Jesus, I believe, take me now. And Lord, we will give you glory 
as you have so many times worked this great work in so many hearts, work it today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.